welcome to the Taste and See podcast, a place where we can discuss our experiences in the kingdom of God and discover how we can impact the world around us, thereby being the salt and light of the earth. Here's your host, Josh Emery. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Taste and See podcast. We are so glad that you are able to join us today. If this is your first time listening to us, the Taste and See podcast is a kingdom-based podcast that exists to encourage saints, empower believers, and reach the lost with the goodness of God. Psalm 34.8 states, Taste and see that the Lord is good. To taste is to experience, while to see is all about perception and discernment. It is our prayer that as we experience the kingdom of God together, that your perspective to the world around you would change. May we have a heart that pursues and echoes the heart of the Father. Today, we're going to be talking about this concept of the kingdom of God. We hear this concept thrown around a lot, and you especially hear it on this podcast, since everything we do and discuss revolves around the kingdom of God and our participation in it. Jesus talked about the kingdom of God a lot during his ministry on earth, but he especially dives into it during the biggest sermon of his life, the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount can be found in Matthew 5-7, through and every word spoken deserves a mindful and reflective read. However, in Matthew 4.17, we see Jesus starting to make his case to pursue the kingdom of heaven. He says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The waiting was over. The kingdom of God was finally here. In Matthew 5.3, Jesus begins his lengthy sermon with these exact words, Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here, Jesus is affirming God's favor on the lowly and contrite in spirit. And what does his plan entail? The kingdom of God. So what exactly is the kingdom of God, and what implications does it have on the lives of believers? What impact does it have on the lives of non-believers? I am blessed and very honored to have someone who I consider to be an expert on this subject with me on the podcast today. From 2018 to 2020, I was honored to sit at the feet of numerous pastors and professors at Southeastern University who poured out their experiences and hearts to me and my classmates. One of those professors was Dr. Yoon Shin. Dr. Yoon Shin is the Associate Professor of Philosophical Theology at Southeastern University in Lakeland, Florida. In addition to teaching both undergraduate and graduate courses, He directs One Mission Outreach and its preaching mission and serves as the co-chair of the Philosophy Interest Group in the Society for Pentecostal Studies. His book, Pentecostalism, Postmodernism, and Reformed Epistemology, James K.A. Smith and the Contours of a Postmodern Christian Epistemology, which constructively engages the epistemology of James K.A. Smith, Alvin Platinga, and Nicholas Wolterstorff, is published with Lexington Books. A graduate of Southeastern University, Reformed Theological Seminary, and most recently, the University of Aberdeen. Dr. Shin lives in Central Florida with his wife and three kids. However, what I appreciate the most about Dr. Shin is not just that he is a really engaging professor with his students, but he makes the concept of theology in all of its forms come alive. I personally regard him as a close advisor, a valued academic, and a good friend. Dr. Shin, welcome, and I am honored to have you join us today. 
Thanks, Josh. That's uh, that was really touching. <laughs> I'm I'm uh, so honored. Thank you. Thank you for give, uh, having me here. It's a great pleasure. Well, thank you. So today we're talking about the kingdom of God, and the whole purpose of the podcast is to encourage believers and saints to be active participants in the kingdom of God and to bring the kingdom to those around them. However, to truly walk in confidence in the kingdom, it is important to understand what the kingdom of God is what it looks like, and essentially how it moves. So my first question for you today is, how do people understand the nature of the kingdom of God? Yeah, um, great question. You know, when I ask my undergraduate students this, many students understand that the kingdom of God is something in the future, a place they go after they die. It's not something that is here and now, something that we need to participate in. And so they equate it with the spiritual heaven. On top of that, many of them understand it as the place they go right after they die and not with uh, new Jerusalem, with the new heavens and the new earth. So it's something that's immediate, not even in the what we would call the eschatological future, the, the, the fulfillment of of God and the second commi- uh, second coming of Jesus, and some others, not so much my undergrads, but some others, and maybe they don't believe this uh, if you ask them. But it seems to be the case in their lives where they can equate the kingdom of God with a political identity, almost like how the many of the Jews back in Jesus' day equated the kingdom of God with the literal Davidic kingdom in which a political Messiah would come and you know, kick out the uh, pagans, the, the Romans, out of Israel, and there would be this reestablishment of the, uh, the flourishing of Israel as it had flourished under David and Solomon. And so is that, the question is, is that what the Bible seems to be telling us about the kingdom of God? And that does not seem to be the case. Because both John the Baptist and Jesus seems to be talking about the kingdom of God being near and actually present amidst their presence, especially in you know in the presence of Jesus. And so then if we talk about the kingdom of God, biblically speaking, we would have to say that it's been here, actually with Jesus. We've been in the kingdom of God. Of course, that raises a whole bunch of questions like, um, well, then why is there still evil in the world? Why is there death and, and whatnot? But yeah, I, to make a long story short, uh, the nature of the kingdom is that Jesus reigns. He has conquered death, and he is realizing the kingdom of God now, even though it's not fulfilled. Great, thank you. So when we understand about this reality of the kingdom of God, we not only want to think about how it moves, but I often wonder about, you know, what is the timing? You know, is is the kingdom of God on a time schedule? Is, you know, does it move fast? Does it move slow? What is, what would you say is the timing of the kingdom of God? Yeah, so uh, we can kind of see some of uh, this, the theology of the timing of the kingdom in the Bible. So, for example, in in Corinthians, we have this hyper-realized eschatology that the kingdom is here, uh, or maybe it's that's over-realized eschatology. The kingdom is here, 
and they have this charisma mania. There's this um, uh, spiritual abuse that's going on. You know, Paul's like saying, hey, listen, I'm glad everyone speaks in tongues and whatnot, you know, but there's no love. And so in the Corinthian church, there's this idea that the kingdom of God is here. Everyone's got the gifts, like this is it. But it's leading to a lot of abuses, abuses that are not merely individual, but it is social. Like we can see the problems with the Lord's Supper, where some people are are feasting and getting drunk, whereas others are being left out. You know, there's a sense in which power corrupts, you know, and as much as the gifts of the Holy Spirit can empower us for ministry, people can take power in a very human way and not in the sense of God's power, which is, yeah, it, it's indeed power, right? God uses overt power to create the universe. Like it takes infinite power to do, to, to make something out of nothing. But much of God's power works out of God's love. And how is God's love expressed in what we would call the canonic or self-emptying love of Jesus? Like every act of God toward creation is this self-emptying canonic love. So, for example, for God to incarnate himself in the form of a human literally means to take on, take uh, to come off the throne, the glorious throne of God, and take off the power, the omnipotence of being God to take on the finitude of human of humanity, right? And not just to come into any form of human. We know that Jesus didn't come literally into the the throne of the empire, but came into a humble manger. Incarnation itself shows that the love of God is self-emptying for our good. And so if we're going to understand power, we ought to understand it in this canonic way. So when people understand the timing of the kingdom, when we realize that there there is a sense in which the kingdom of God is realized, as I, as I mentioned, you know, it's been here for over 2,000 years, it doesn't mean that now we ought to take the prerogative of of the overt power, the, the, the strength type of power that we often attribute to God and attribute to ourselves, because at that point, then it's it becomes so easy for us to wield that power in unjust ways. And that's what happened in the Corinthian church. We also see that in the Thessalonian church where, you know, people thought the kingdom was, was here and they became idle bodies, you know, and they weren't willing to work and whatnot, right? And so, like, the timing of the kingdom is, and understanding its nature here is very important. And for, like, let's say the Galatian church, they didn't have a realized eschatology. It was more of an under-realized eschatology. It was like, they were the Judaizers were basically saying, well, to be a Christian, you, we kind of have to go back to the old ways, as if the kingdom of God had not uh, had not come, and so uh, Gentile Christians had to live like Jewish Christians. You know, again, the question of the kingdom of God is very important. I follow what seems to be the majority view nowadays, especially in the theology of somebody like N.T. Wright, that the kingdom of God is now and not yet. Once again, it's now. Jesus ushered it in. He is the king. 
And you can't have the kingdom of God without the king. And as much as we confess that Jesus is Lord or king, well, his kingdom is here. But it is not consummated. So that, you know, as a, as a Pentecostal, right, we believe in the healing of the body. We believe in the miraculous still happening. But, you know, some people die. I've had family members die of sickness, even though many people fervently pray for their healing. You know, why is it that not everything is working as, as it ought in the kingdom? And that acts as empirical evidence that the kingdom is not consummated. And therefore, there is still a lack of weakness, death and sorrow in this world. And hence, while we still participate in what we would call the marks of the kingdom, of realizing and advancing the kingdom on earth, we also pray Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come. You know, some there are times when I'm just, when I see the depravity of the world and the depravity in myself, I just sometimes pray, Lord, come now in this, you know, fulfill all this, bring your peace, because it's just tiring seeing the evil realize, and again, this world and also inside me, for we all have hearts that are prone to wander. So, yeah, I would say the kingdom is now, but not yet. But yet, but because it is still now, and we've been commanded to uh, advance the kingdom, we are to participate in its marks. Thank you so much. And, you know, I, I love how when we look at this eschatological perspective, what I appreciate about it is I'm reminded to a book that we discussed in my class with you by Dr. Young, which said that theology really starts at the end. It starts at the eschatology. It starts at the coming of the kingdom and God's consummation with his kingdom here on earth. And it also reminds me of Jurgen Moltmann's Theology of Hope, that based on the implications of Jesus's return, there is hope. Even in the midst of sickness and people still passing, there is still hope, even when things don't go our way, even when we walk through the valleys, that Jesus is our good shepherd and that his return is our hope. And so thank you for mentioning that. I think that's really important. And I know that's one of the things that really spoke to me throughout the past year of that even in a world of darkness, there still is some hope. So in light of how we understand the kingdom of God and how we understand the timing of the kingdom of God, I have to imagine that has to have some impact on how we understand the gospel. So how do we understand the gospel in light of all that we've discussed so far? Yeah. Now, before before we touch on that, uh, which that's that's a very important question because the gospel and the kingdom are are very much intricately tied. But I, I want to touch on something that you you mentioned. You said that you know in this time of the now and the not yet, uh, Jesus still walks with us, and that's important. The King is also High Priest, who continually intercedes for us, and He intercedes for us in his continuing humanity, like our hope in the not yet is the resurrection. You know, some people believe that heaven is this spiritual realm in which we have, you know, south of our finite, sinful, fallen bodily nature. But that's that's a, a very platonic understanding of the, the consummated end for Plato and his predecessors. For Plato and those who followed after him, believe that the body 
and the material world was fallen because it was, in various ways of explanation, was away, uh, distant from the perfectness of the forms or the one or whatnot or being itself. And given that the the perf- perfection of the forms or the one is spiritual. You know, Christians, as much they, as they have been influenced by Platonism and Neoplatonism from the very beginning, from the early church, many have understood the end in this Platonic sense that it's the spiritual realm. But Jesus, in his resurrection, in this Hebraic moment, shows us that he ascended in bodily form, so that as he is sitting at the right hand of the Father, he is, yes, eternally God as the second person of the Trinity, who is spirit, but he is also human. And, you know, we can kind of speculate about what our resurrected bodies are going to be like by looking at Jesus's resurrected body. And, you know, he still has the marks of his torture. Now, the question is, the speculative question is, is he just allowing that to remain as evidence of his love as his continuing identification with his people or you know that this is voluntary thing or that we're all going to somehow keep our scars like I have scars on my knees from falling down when I was a kid I'm like oh man they kind of look terrible I want I want those gone when I'm resurrected you know whatever the speculation is the thing is that in his resurrected body uh, Jesus kept that to continually identify with us out of his love for us. So given that we're in the now and the not yet, and the miraculous still happen, but we still live in a world of sorrow, and we personally feel the depth of sorrow, and sometimes almost seeming hopelessness at times, we don't have to be indeed hopeless because Jesus continually identifies with us. He will never let us go because he never lets go of his humanity. I mean, that is beautiful. The king is high priest. The king is one of us. And, you know, I think that we have to keep that in mind. And so so he continually walks with us. Now, uh, going back to the question of the gospel and the kingdom. So the gospel is in Greek, euangelion, or translated as good news. Well, what is the good news? Again, when I ask about this question to my undergraduate students, and I ask them, hey, if you're evangelizing and you're preaching the good news, what do you say? Like, what makes up the good news? Most students say, well, you know, the good news is that Jesus has forgiven us of our sins, and that if you believe in him and ask him to come into your heart, that you will be saved, that this is the essence of the good news. And I tell them, yes, that that is right, but only partly so. Because really, where we get that is in major form in Paul. Interestingly, not in the Synoptic Gospels, which are you know made up of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we get Evangelion, but it's not primarily about forgiveness of sins. I mean, where do we explicitly get Jesus saying, hey, I'm going to die for you, and that if you believe in me and my resurrection, your sins will be forgiven. He doesn't do that. Rather, the good news is about the kingdom of God, that the kingdom is ushered in through Jesus. 
because Jesus is the spirit anointed man. And so the good news is that the kingdoms of this world, whether that was Rome, whether that was, you know, America or any other world powers, it's not that. Rather, it is that God now reigns. That is the good news, that God has taken over the powers of this world, both material and spiritual, of the worldly kingdoms and the kingdom of demons. And this is indeed a very much a political message, of course, not the political message that the Jews understood to be. Um, and we know it's a political message, especially when we look at the, the infant narratives of Jesus and Luke. When the, the shepherds are out on the field and the angels show up, and they say, you know, we bring you good news. Today, a savior is born, right? Yeah, I mean, we take that as, we take that, you know, as something we, we like to ponder on in Christmas, whatnot. But that is the same proclamation that would be sent out by the Roman Empire when a son would be born to the emperor. They're literally saying good news. The good news is here because your savior, your Caesar is your, the next Caesar is born. Luke was very much conscious of that message in co-opting that message and applying it to Jesus. Jesus is indeed Lord of the universe. And so the gospel, the good news is that Jesus reigns, that God reigns. And interestingly so, that type of political message means that Kingdom life is not merely spiritual. It's not merely about the devotional life. It's not merely about my private relationship with Jesus. And I would say that that type of understanding of gospel as a person, merely or even predominantly or primarily a personal relationship with Jesus is a Christianity that we received from Enlightenment modernity that privatized religion and publicized secularism. It's a Christianity that went into retreat in Enlightenment modernity. It's a Christianity that proclaims Jesus as Lord in the private sphere, but not in the public sphere. And in this way, I think that that is a very dangerous Christianity because it hinders the essence of the gospel message of Jesus, which means that God reigns everywhere, both in the private and the public. And, and he, he exemplifies this in his understanding of the kingdom of God. You know, he is ushering in the good news of the kingdom. So how does Jesus understand the gospel and the kingdom? It's not that he kind of came up with the idea of the kingdom of God on his own, as if, once again, he's this superhuman being, which often we attribute Jesus to be. But remember that Jesus is fully human. We have to take his full humanity seriously. So he came to understand the kingdom of God through his own studies, through the uh, studies that he would have uh, learned uh, in the synagogue system and whatnot. And where in the Bible do we get the clearest picture of the kingdom? Well, it's in Isaiah. And Isaiah does not understand the kingdom as a spiritual kingdom. Rather, he understands the kingdom as a real kingdom, as a kingdom of the Davidic king, where oppression ends. So where, when we think of, let's say, I believe Isaiah 58, where God is talking about 
the fast that he desires. It's not this spiritualized, privatized fasting that we often think of. He says, no, you know, the type of fasting that you want is where you help other people. And it's when we do that, that our prayers will be heard, that the Lord will be our rear guard, right? And, and interestingly, so when Jesus goes to Nazareth, you know, and goes up to read from the Old Testament, it's interesting that it is the book of Isaiah that is handed to him and he reads. Luke 4, 14, it says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogue and everyone praised him. And he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom and he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news, right? euangelion. But once again, it's not to proclaim good news to forgive sinners. Rather, it is proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, or jubilee. And that is so interesting, right? And he rolls up the scroll, and everyone's eyes are upon him, and he says, today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I mean, this is like literally the Tony Stark moment in Iron Man 1, where he says, yes, I am Iron Man. He's like literally saying, I am the Messiah. This is, this is my role. I have been born for this. I am the one who has been anointed by the Holy Spirit to do this work. And so this doesn't mean that somehow Pauline's uh, soteriology or theology of salvation and the Lucan soteriology are somehow mutually exclusionary. It's not that. There's giving us parts of the good news. Where it has gone wrong is that in certain sectors in contemporary Christianity, we have dialed up the volume of the Pauline message and have dialed down almost to a mute, right? The setting of mute, the silence of this material aspect, the material life of living out the kingdom. And so when we read the Synoptic Gospels, we see how we are we are shown to be with God when we visit those who are in prison. Those are the marks that Jesus seems to use to separate the sheep from the goats. And so there is a social element to the gospel, and that that might sound very uncomfortable to some people. It might sound politically liberal to now talk about social needs, meeting, talking about oppression. And then, therefore, oppressors. We have to think hard about what it means to live out the kingdom of God. There is a social aspect. Now, it might sound liberal because, in a way, political liberals have been talking about this. Now, I'm not also saying that social justice, as understood by political liberals, is 100% right. Neither am I saying conservative, political conservatives are, are saying things 100% right either. But there is, both sides got 
certain things right, that there is a private element, but that there's also a social element. We need to have them both. Thank you for mentioning that, especially how we tend to really privatize our relations with God and our walk in the kingdom and really sharing the kingdom. But when you were talking about that, I thought of that song I always sing in Sunday school, hide it under a bush, oh no, I'm going to let it shine. And about how often we just hold this concept of the kingdom of God, this reality of this Jesus here and, and not yet, how we really just keep it for ourselves. And so I really appreciate how you said that the gospel isn't just personal, it's social as well, that there is a social aspect to the gospel. And so when we think of the kingdom of God in that aspect, how do the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount play into that? How do they play into this personal and social aspects of the kingdom of God and the gospel, this good news as not in the way that Paul means, but in the way that Jesus means. How do we understand the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount and their roles in our lives? Yeah, um, that's a great question. We need to advance the kingdom. That's the role, that's, that's part of discipleship. I mean, to be a disciple is to spread the good news, which is the good news of the kingdom of God, and to be rightful citizens of the kingdom of God. Now, this also means that the ch- this is this may be a little controversial, but the church is not the kingdom. The church can oppose the kingdom in as much that as we don't participate in, let's say, like the beatitudes, the virtues of the kingdom, the marks of the kingdom. We can actually oppose the kingdom of God, and we and as and as much as the kingdom of God is where God reigns, it's the rule of God. We can see in Israelite history in which the people of God, the Jews, rebelled against God's reign by going after idols, and not just. And this wasn't merely a privatized thing. Their worship of idols had. Um, social means, right? It led to the oppressing of the poor. It led to things like child sacrifice. You know, so even then, like back then, literal participating in the, the kingdom of Israel and kingdom of Judah had a, a social element that led to God's judgment. And so as the church, as the Christian church, we can also be part and participate in the kingdom of God, and we can also oppose the kingdom of God and pray that we don't do that, although we often do, myself included, whenever we don't participate in the marks. So what are the marks? Well, many biblical scholars and Christian ethicists have argued that the Sermon on the Mount, especially the Beatitude, define the, or picture for us, the ethics of the new kingdom, okay? And it's something that we ought to, and therefore it's something that we ought to realize in our life. And we know that it's something that we have to practice. Because right after the Beatitudes, it is framed by this salt and light passage. And we, we love that passage, right? We say, yeah, we need to be Christians and we need to be salt and we need to, you know, we need to be light. We need to let our light shine out in the world and whatnot. But when people talk about that, they're not framing it in terms of the Beatitudes. And they're not, you know, they're not framing it in terms of the Sermon on the Mount. They kind of fit what it means to be salt and light with their understanding of what 
right Christian life looks like, which, you know, often it looks right and whatnot, but we also want to be contextually biblical too. And so the Sermon on the Mount is talking about, uh, well, I'm sorry, let's just go to the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, actually, let's read the Beatitudes. Yeah, I think it'll be helpful to go back to uh, Matthew 5 and read the Beatitudes in whole. It says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Now that's very important because Matthew is picturing Jesus as the new Moses. He is going up to the mountain to give us the law of the new covenant. Okay, And so his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom in heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then it says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So he's saying, in order to be salt and light, we have to make sure that the Beatitudes are being practiced in our lives? Are we poor in spirit? Are we mourning? Are we meek? Are we hungering, thirsting for righteousness? And, and so on and so on. Now, of course, when we read this, it, it sounds kind of bewildering. Like, does Jesus want us to be clinically depressed? Does he want us to continually just, you know, cry and mourn, you know, and just uh, be a Betty Downer, like, womp, womp. Like, if somebody's happy, we just got to make sure that they are sad too, because then we're going to help them to mourn and they will be comforted, right? Uh, I, I mean, I don't think so. I think we need to get a, also get a better understanding of what it means to be blessed in, in with these marks. Okay, so what are the Beatitudes saying then, right? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, it's interesting that in Luke, we get this same same thing, but it's a little bit different. Like in Matthew, it says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. But in Luke, it says, blessed are those who are poor, like literally poor. So we're kind of talking about the similar things. But, but first, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, especially the poor back then, they didn't have the social security net that many Americans have now. Like they were literally poor. They would often, you know, beg on the streets by the temple and whatnot, right? Now the poor need needed help, but they had really no one to turn to for their deliverance. They didn't have a social security net like, you know, like what we have here in, in the U.S. and whatnot. Everyone has literally failed them. And so those who are poor and often therefore poor in spirit, the only thing they could do is to throw themselves to God for God's providential care. And that's why they have this poverty of spirit that often came from literally being poor. They realized that the only one that they could trust is God. And so we have to ask ourselves whether we are rich middle class or poor, do we also see God 
as the ultimate deliverer, that we can trust in God for God's providential care. For them, Jesus answers, theirs is the kingdom of God. Why? Because God is their deliverer. God is the one who reigns. And and he says, blessed are those who mourn. Once again, must we be depressed? No, because depression as a clinical case is just a permanent thing, right? And it has no really object of mourning. You, you're just always mourning. You don't, and you don't even know why, right? Um, but when Jesus is talking about those who are mourning, is that this is a good thing because it has an object of mourning. Why do we mourn? Because there's something to mourn about. It is a sign of grief and repentance unlike the hypocrites and the powerful. Remember that time where Jesus is looking at two people who are praying, the the Pharisee, the teacher of the law, and the and tax collector. One is in the front, the other is in the back. And the, the Pharisee is praying, Lord, thank you for not making me like that tax collector. Whereas the tax collector is just is beating his breast. He is mourning because he recognizes his status. He recognizes what he does is wrong and he's grieving and is repenting. The hypocrite and the often the powerful who are not poor in spirit because having power, they reckon they've they've come to this point to say that I don't need God, you know? And so they have no reason to mourn. This is why it is very good to mourn because it helps us to understand the depth of depravity and it helps us to acknowledge that there's evil in the world, that there's suffering in the world. And on top of that, because Hebraic culture was a a communal culture, not an individualistic culture. This is a mere individual mourning that Jesus is talking about. Jesus is saying we need corporate mourning. It's like the repentance of Ezra. When Ezra came and saw that the, that the, though the Israelites who had returned from exile were intermarrying the very same things that led to the fall of Israel, starting with Solomon. Like even though Ezra did not partake in it, he repented on behalf of Israel, right? We need to also learn corporate mourning. And when we do, the beautiful message of Jesus is that God will comfort us. And it raises the question, do we now in the local assembly make room for lament? Do we mourn as a church? When a church gathering... The Sunday service is always exciting, that we're always excited to be there. The church is actually depriving the body of Christ from participating in this vital beatitude. He also says, blessed are those who are meek or humble, because the humble recognize their humility, their powerlessness. And who were, then the Jews were literally humbled. They were humbled by oppression and they are looking to God for deliverance. Okay. But in this way, you had the zealots. You had the zealots who were literally trying to use the sword to cut off the heads of the Romans. Now that is not real humility. Real humility is not weakness, but being in power, because we're now recognizing that it is 
real humility to take on injustice with God's help, that's really power. Not taking it up on our own power to bring about our own kingdom, to bring about our own Isaac. That's human wisdom, which is really folly. But to those who are indeed meek and humble, Jesus answered, it is they who will inherit the earth. The humble, the oppressed, will inherit the earth. And then he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, I I ask people, especially my students, like, what is righteousness? And often I get this answer. It's a very negative answer, not like negative, like this is bad, but negative as in we are righteous by the things that we don't do. We don't do certain things. We don't drink alcohol. We don't curse. We don't watch certain movies. We don't listen to certain music. We don't dress a certain way, right? And that is how we understand what righteousness means. And on top of that, if we define righteousness that way, it makes Jesus's statement about how our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees rather confusing. Like, We're saying, well, what does that mean, you know? But righteousness, according to the Bible, uh, sadakah in Hebrew and dikaiosune in Greek, has this form of kind of covenant righteousness and delivering justice type of righteousness as its definition. So righteousness is not mere justification from sins. Righteousness is not justification from our personal sins and now therefore not doing certain things. Rather, Sadaqah has this, and Dikayasuna in the covenantal way, has this form of God delivering justice, right? God delivers people from oppression and restores them into freedom, into wholeness, into shalom. And so hungering and thirsting for righteousness is really seeking, living out God's covenant fidelity with the world, which God's covenant fidelity is, again, not merely spiritual, but bringing about wholeness what, you know, again, this Isianic vision of the kingdom of God. It is just righteousness or justice righteousness. And again, it might sound, to use the term justice these days is uncomfortable because people already equate with some type of liberal political American ideology. But it's not that. This is justice predates this. Justice is part of the heart of God. And that's the type of righteousness we must hunger and thirst for. And therefore, once again, Christianity is not armchair Sunday privatized individual Christianity. It is a Christianity that makes us live out in the world, living out God's kingdom. And to them, Jesus answered, they will be filled with righteousness. They will be filled with just righteousness. And then he goes on to say, blessed are the merciful, those who are generous. The merciful are those who are generous in doing act of deliverance. They offer hope to people. And who brings us hope? God, right? So when we are merciful, we are literally reflecting God's delivering nature. And that's beautiful. That is what it means to be Christ-like. And to them, Jesus answers, they too will receive mercy. And it says, Blessed are those pure in heart. And the heart was the core of humanity for the Jews. 
it was both an outward posture and direction toward God. And so being pure in heart was not merely, again, being reactionary to the world, keeping certain things out of our hearts by not watching certain movies, dressing a certain way or whatnot. It is to have a pureness of heart that is directed toward God and therefore directed toward others. God's heart is directed toward us and not just within the triune loving relationship. And therefore, when we are pure in heart, Jesus answered, they will see God. Why? Because we are reflecting God's own inward and outwardness of his heart. And Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. God is peace, right? And God invites people into peace. And what is peace? It's not, you know, the, the English word peace it does not really capture the understanding of peace according to the Hebraic word shalom. Shalom means wholeness, to not lack anything, right? That's the type of peace that we ought to live out for, not the reductionistic peace that we often attribute with the English term, right? For many of us who have been, who are married or maybe those who are in a significant relationship, you have a significant girlfriend, long-lasting girlfriend, or you're engaged and whatnot, you know, we all get into a situation where we fight and argue, and then we get into this period where we're not actively fighting. You know, we we may have even said sorry, but still things, you know, there are there's still emotional wounds, you know, and you can feel the coldness in the room, right? Now, we can say that there is peace, in the English sense of the term, because now there is lack of conflict. We're not arguing and we're not fighting, but there isn't wholeness. Relationship has not been restored to where it needs to be. That is the type of peace that God desires for us. So when we, when God desires us to be peacemakers, it's not merely to step into a fight and say, okay, let's just all make up. When we see people lacking wholeness, we must go out there and fight for wholeness on their behalf, right? Visiting the people in prison, proclaiming jubilee. Jubilee was to right wrong. Jubilee is to restore lands to their rightful owners. Jubilee is to take away the burden of debt, right? To bring about equality again. Israel never practiced jubilee, but that was the heart of God for his people, because that is what it means to reflect God's own peacemaking nature. Jesus is our Prince of Peace. Are we doing that? Are we living out shalom? Are we realizing shalom in as much as Jesus reigns in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God, therefore, is to be a kingdom of shalom? Are we agents of shalom or are we also playing a part in bringing lack, bringing conflict, bringing oppression, bringing sorrow and suffering into people's lives? But for those who are living out God's call for shalom, Jesus answers, they are the children of God. May we all be children of God. And then he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for just righteousness. 
you know, when, when we actually seek justice, when we seek righteousness, it's often going to be up against people who are powerful, privileged, and those who are benefiting directly or indirectly on the backs of other people. Because again, righteousness is just righteousness, and it's against oppression, against both individual and social structures that might keep people down. Okay, and so when we, when people seek righteousness in this active sense of justice making, those in power and authority will continue to desire the status quo to remain, and therefore. When people try to shake up the status quo, they will be persecuted. And in this way, Jesus is saying, when you do that, you will be persecuted. But when you do, you will inherit the kingdom of God. Those are uncomfortable words, especially where we land in our U.S. political side. But the Bible ought to read us and not us merely reading the Bible. The Bible needs to show us where we lack. Because we will. We are living in the now and the not yet. We are not perfect. There are elements of injustice and wickedness in our hearts and in our groups, in our tribes, in our social structures. And therefore, what does it mean to be disciples? What does it mean to live out the kingdom of God? It cannot be merely worshiping in church. It has to be a Monday through to Sunday, 24-7 Christianity. That is what it means to live out the kingdom. And biblical scholars and ethicists have called the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitude the virtues of the kingdom. Well, then what is a virtue? A virtue is an excellent trait of a person, of a soul. It's an inner disposition and of a character. So what is a character? A character is something that is kind of set and enduring. And so virtue theorists say that you develop your virtue through repeated action. And what's a repeated action but habits? And it's our habits that define our character. Right? Why do we call someone a habitual liar? Because that person has been lying all the time that it became a habit. And therefore, we, when that person says, you know, says a lie, we don't say, oh, you know, Jim, Jim lied. No, it's not a one-time deal. To a habitual liar, we say, no, Jim is a habitual liar. We say Jim is a liar, right? An honest person becomes honest by practicing honesty, and that honesty becomes a habit. It identifies the person so that Susan, who is honest, we say she is an honest person. And if she lies, we say, ooh, you know, that's wrong. But, you know, maybe that was just she had a moment of weakness of will, right? But we wouldn't call her a liar, right? We'll just say she made a mistake. It was an accident to her character. So virtue and its counterpart, vice, are not something that happens once. They are something that we practice all the time, that turns into a habit, that identifies our very character. We are what we do. We become what we habitually practice. And therefore, the fact that the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount are considered virtues of the kingdom means that they must be practiced 
continually, habitually in our lives. And when we only practice them within the four walls of the local assembly, they cannot be habits. They therefore then not identifying the people, which again, as I said at the beginning, the church, the body of Christ is not the kingdom. The marks of the kingdom, the virtues of the kingdom must be practiced by the church through habits, habitual action. Only when they do that can we equate the church with the kingdom of God. And so let me finish with the last thing. When we talk, I talked about virtues. Let me just make a little comment, quick comment about vice. Vice and sin are different. Sin, you can do once and that's it. Vice is repeated. And so again, like a virtue, like Susan, who is an honest person, can lie once and sin, but we would not call her a vicious person, right? A person of vice, a habitual liar. In that way, if we want to be a church people living for the kingdom of God, we have to live out the virtues. But I would encourage your listeners to also study the vices, especially like the seven deadly sins, the seven deadly vices that Christian tradition talks about. Pride, greed, wrath, envy, lust, gluttony, and sloth. Now, again, these aren't one-off deals that we participate in here and there. They're sins and they're not good. But we have to ask ourselves, are we habitually prideful? Are we habitually greedy in our consumeristic culture? Do we allow our anger to just seethe in our hearts? The difference between an anger and murder or wrath and murder is that the murderer merely acted upon his or her wrath. Envy is not just being jealous. No, God is jealous. So apparently jealousy is not technically wrong. Jealousy is wanting what is undeniably like yours, right? Therefore, we are God. Therefore, God can be jealous over us. But envy is not just wanting what someone has, but not getting what someone has, actually pulling down that person to your level or lust and gluttony. And gluttony is not merely just inordinate desire to eat. It's inordinate desire for for food. And in that way, even the really healthy, like health conscious person who just needs to have food in a certain way is also a gluttonous person because it has, that person is putting inordinate desire and pleasure in food and not on God. And people get there from uh, you know, taking the first step and saying, Oh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to make sure that I live this very healthy life. And then putting one's own value in what food brings in his or her life. Sloth is not just laziness. It's not merely just like working very hard and wanting to take a nap. That's not sloth. Sloth, like all the other vices is a habit that we, and often and this is not material sloth which it is part of it, but especially we don't think of it in a, as a spiritual sloth. When we have spiritual apathy, that is sloth. And that occurs from the first practice that gets instantiated over and over and over again until it becomes habitual. So how do we practice the kingdom of God? We practice the Sermon on the Mount and we whatever vices that the seven deadly vices and other vices that we 
recognizing ourselves, working against that, making sure that those habits no longer are our habits in our lives. So, yeah, and so I hope that those ideas helped your listeners better understand what it means to live in the kingdom of God. Dr. Shin, thank you so much for really just diving into the Beatitudes with us and reminding us that essentially this is the new law. This is the law found in grace, yet what Jesus mentioned essentially does bring us freedom, I believe. And so, again, I just want to thank you so much for your time and your wisdom and your encouragement today for us to realize that the kingdom of God isn't just something that's to come. It is here. It is now. We have a good shepherd who walks among us that we embrace Christ, not only in the spiritual sense, but in also his full humanity, that Jesus wept. Jesus learned just as we did. Jesus went through trials just as we did. Jesus experienced joys just as we did. And so I really appreciate that. And also the fact that the gospel, how we understand it, isn't something that is just to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, but to really proclaim that Jesus is here. The kingdom of God is at hand, and it is meant for the spiritually poor. It is meant for even those who we may consider on the fringes of society. I I look at Jesus and I see that he fellowshiped with prostitutes and tax collectors and people who society just despised or they refused to look at. And so I really pray that as we walk from here and just really reflect on what you've shared with us today, that the kingdom of God wouldn't be just something we look forward to, but it would be something that we would experience, not just through our words and our thoughts, but our actions as well. And so I I really appreciate that. So thank you again for joining us today. Dr. Shin, I know that you were working on a new book. Is that correct? I am. I'm co-authoring with a good friend of mine, Stephen Felix Yeager, who teaches over at Life Pacific University in California. And we are contracted with Baker Academic to publish a book, a freshman level book on an introduction to Christian worldview. It's almost like it's worldview, but also very uh, like introduction to Christian philosophy from a Pentecostal perspective. That's awesome. That's great. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah. Yeah. You're welcome, Josh. It was a pleasure. Listeners, we pray that you were encouraged today and that you were equipped with at least some knowledge to begin or continue to walk in the kingdom of God more boldly and more humbly. To find out more information about the Taste and See podcast or to learn more about our guest today, Dr. Yoon Shin, check out www.tasteandseepodcast.com. Next week, we will be beginning a four-part series on the birth of Jesus titled, He Shall Be Called. So I pray that you will join us for this journey into the Christmas season as we celebrate the Savior of the world. I pray that you have a blessed and safe Thanksgiving holiday with your family and friends. And always remember, friends, that the Lord is good. See you next week. Thank you for listening to the Taste and See podcast. We hope that you were encouraged and empowered by our conversation today. For future and past episodes, please follow us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. You can also follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash the taste and see podcast. Now go live for the kingdom and always remember that the Lord is good.